Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you just in the, in the wake of that beautiful song to ask that you would equip us to be a people who are able to respond to you and to all circumstances, regardless of what comes our way, Lord. To know that in the midst of, of trials, as well as in times of great joy, you are with us and you are near to us. Lord, I recognize that, that all of us come from various backgrounds and homes and stories with various burdens and heartaches, Lord, in this room. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you meet us in these times of difficulty and that you see us through it. And so, Lord, I ask that you would continue to be at work in our lives in this time together as we worship you, as we hear from your word, and as we seek to be formed and shaped by it. Oh, Lord, would you meet us in, in our hurts, in our pains, and in our joys, and would you show yourself to be the God who is with us. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, well, it's good to, to see you all. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Reed Kappel. I serve as the campus pastor here uh, of the Olathe Campus of Christ Community. And if, uh, if you're new, if you're a guest, again, we are glad you're here. Uh, glad to have you here on, our, on this Labor Day weekend. And, uh, and yeah, just, just a joy to be with you and open God's word. Um, at, the, at the risk of making myself look even more ridiculous than I normally do on a Sunday morning, uh, I'm going to invite you in on something that I have found myself thinking about since like third or fourth grade. And as a grown man, I actually, I turned 37 tomorrow, which you probably can't believe that. But I, since fourth grade, I have found myself conducting this very bizarre thought experiment where I just randomly start to think about what would I do if I were just magically teleported to a deserted island or to the top of a mountain in the Himalayas or uh, like just somewhere completely remote. Like, what would I do? How would I survive? How would I find food? You know, how would I keep my skin nice and smooth and dry? You know, like, like I think about these things and I've done it like since I was a kid. Like, how would I survive in these moments? And even like when we, when our family, we, we go to Colorado in the summer sometimes and I'll think about that. We'll be like at our cabin and I'll see a mountain. I'm like, if I were just brought to the top of that mountain, what would I do? How would I survive? Does anybody else do that? That's okay. That's okay. That's fine. I wasn't expecting that. And I really, I, I don't know why I do this because I'm not like this great outdoorsman. I'm not like a Bear Grylls. I'm not a MacGyver. Heck, I wasn't even a Boy Scout growing up. But, but, uh, but I think the reason I do this, I'm drawn to this idea of thinking about what would I do? How would I respond in the midst of kind of crazy circumstances? And, and I think all of us like that. We're, we're drawn to various survival stories. I think we like this idea of, of the human spirit conquering and enduring difficult situations. In fact, you might be aware of this, but there's an entire series of children's books devoted to this idea of survival. Have you guys, any of you kids ever read the I Survive books? Any kids in here? Maybe not. Okay, we've got one. My daughter. That's good. So the next one that's coming out in September, it's literally, it's like true stories of survival. So this is the one, I survived the attack of the Grizzlies in 1967. Like they're all real historical stories, but they're fictionalized with these children. Now, if that bear is life-size, there's no way that girl made it. There's just no way. Um, but we're drawn to these stories for various reasons. I think we love the idea of a good survival story, the endurance of the human spirit, and, and as we come to the end of the, of the book of Acts, we have two more weeks here in the book of Acts, and in these final chapters, we actually see a remarkable story of endurance, of survival, as Paul and Luke are journeying to Rome in this crazy sea voyage. But more than it just being a great story of survival and endurance, 
It is also a story that shows us something about the character and the nature of God. That he is a God who will stop at nothing to fulfill his plans in bringing about great good in the lives of his people and bringing glory to his name. That in this crazy sea voyage, we see God still at work in bringing the gospel to Rome and spreading to the ends of the earth from that point. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at portions of chapter 27 and 28. And what I want to do this morning is I want to read a portion of chapter 27 and then walk through the rest of the text together. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to read along. But would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we read from chapter, seven, chapter 27 of the book of Acts? Verses 1 through 12. And again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to read along Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Near which was the city of Lasia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, referring to the Passover, was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, there's a ton of detail in this, just the opening portion of chapter 27. I mean, it doesn't seem that it's like, like this is the word of God, like all these details and these, these nautical descriptions and all these various ports, like what's going on here? And, and remember, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. So Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, is writing Acts. And Luke is a historian and a physician by trade. And Luke is laying out with great detail the final leg of this journey that he and Paul and some other prisoners are on under the watch of Roman guards. They're being sent to Rome. And so just kind of the context, remember, Paul has, has pleaded to Caesar. Uh, he has been falsely accused. He was beaten. And, and they wanted to let him go when they found out he was a Roman citizen. But he said, no, I want you to take me to Caesar. I want to go to Rome. And so Paul's whole aim is to try to get to Rome, not so that he can plead his case and be exonerated, but so that he might bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to at that time the center of the known world so that it might spread to the ends of the earth. And so Luke is sharing this last leg of the journey, and and he's doing it in great detail. And really, the the words great detail and journey don't do it justice for what what, uh, Luke is describing in chapters 27 and 28. And so as Luke records for us, 
he shows that this, this very carefully charted out plan and this journey that the Roman soldiers have put forth doesn't really go as planned. What, what should have taken probably in total during ideal conditions, probably a five-week trip, it ended up being nearly a four-month journey out to sea. And it all started to go bad when Paul and the crew, they show up to Fair Havens, and they're at this port just weeks before the dangerous winter season, which most people were not going out in ships during the winter season, very treacherous. And, and Paul is trying to advise them, like, hey guys, I know I'm just a prisoner, I know I'm just a preacher, but I really don't think that we should go out to sea, it's going to be dangerous. Let's stay here in Fair Havens. And they say, thanks, but no thanks, you know. No one likes a backseat sailor, you know, so they don't listen to Paul. Um, and so they decide to sail for Phoenix, which really, it, it was about a 50-mile journey, and it should have taken them less than a day, maybe a day max. Uh, but instead, we see that the sea had other plans. And so in verse 14, as we continue on, we see what happens to the crew out to sea. In verse 14, Luke records for us, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. So this storm that comes in was, was so violent that it threw them wildly off course, that they were losing their trajectory and not knowing where they were, they were headed. And, and so you've got to think about like what, what's going on in this situation? What's going on in Paul's mind, in Luke's mind, in the mind of the crew? They did all that they could to try to secure the ship, to try to keep it from falling apart. Uh, we don't know exactly kind of what's going on, but more than likely they're taking various cables and ropes to try to, uh, to secure the ship so that it keeps from, from ripping apart during this treacherous storm. And, and it's all to no avail because what we start to see is that literally the whole crew starts to realize that they are without hope. And Luke records this for us in verse 20 where he says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And no small tempest lay, lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And, and notice how Luke said, all hope of us being saved. So, so Luke is throwing himself in the mix here. Like they're out to sea. It is not looking good. This is the end. And so they're kind of, fate is kind of set it in at, the, at this moment. And, and I want us to just try to put ourselves kind of in the, you know, the, the sea-soaked sandals of Paul and Luke and the rest of the crew here. And just think about what would we do in this moment? Similar to my ridiculous imagination, you put yourself in this circumstance and think, how would I survive? How would I respond? If you, are, if you are a believer in God, like what would your faith, what would this do to your faith? What would the response be in this situation? And, and I, I think the reason why Luke puts this story here for us is because he's wanting to, us to see something about the nature and character of God. I think he's wanting to show us that God is actually showing us what it will take, not just for Paul and for Luke, but I think for all followers of Jesus, what it will take to endure as the church amidst crazy situations, including natural disasters like this. Luke is trying to help us see that God is showing us what it will take to endure trials and hardships. And, and I think what, what God's doing is he, he's kind of giving, if, if we look at the whole text, I think God is kind of giving Paul and us three tools to kind of put in our survival kit, if you will. And, and the first thing that I think we see is that in order to be the kind of people that, that are sent to endure, to face hardships and trials and endure, the first thing we need is hope against despair. We need hope against despair. 
And we, and we see this in the way Paul responds to this hopeless situation when everyone else has given up. We see that in this moment where all hope is gone, when Paul has every good reason to give the greatest I told you so speech, you know, in history, like, I told you we should have stayed at Fair Havens. Uh, and he does that a little bit, but, but he decides to lean in and love the crew, love these fellow prisoners, and even love the captors who have kept him in chains. He has the ability to comfort them even in this hopeless moment. And Luke records that for us in verse 22. And so Luke says, yet now, this is Paul speaking to the crew who's just given up all hope, lost at, lost at sea, and this is what Paul says. I now urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So there's, there's some good news, but also bad news. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. You, uh, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And so the crew, the crew actually listens to Paul. I mean, like, they could have dismissed him and said, like, we, we, this is no time for your kind of spiritual mumbo-jumbo. We don't have time for these fairy tales or these, these delusional uh, images that you've had in your dreams. But they respond to him, and they, and they kind of trust Paul to some degree. Now, that doesn't mean that the entire crew is now followers of Jesus, and they are worshipers of the one true God, but they are at least entertaining the idea that Paul might be telling the truth. And, and what I think is really great about this, this crew is that some of us this morning can probably resonate with and identify with the crew in this situation. That where you are in your own faith journey is that you're, you're not at a place where you're fully bought into this idea of God, about Jesus, about faith, but, but neither are you at a place where you're fully ready to just reject it and throw it all away. You're kind of in this place of I'm not quite sure, but I, I don't know if I can step forward in faith, but I, I, I definitely can't keep stepping backwards in rejection and disbelief. Perhaps you see a gap in front of you to step forward in faith, but if you look back, you also notice that there's a gap to go backwards into disbelief. And so the question for you is, what, what is the next move? What is the next action? Are you willing to hear the words of Paul and the claims of the Christian faith and say that in the midst of danger, in the midst of, of opposition and trial, I will choose hope? And, and if, if that describes you, if that describes you, the, the place you're in of there's a gap ahead of me, and I feel like I can't really step forward in faith, but neither am I ready to entirely reject it, if that describes you, can I just say, keep, keep exploring. I am, and hear me say, I am not asking you to suspend reason or to spend your, your, suspend your rational thinking and just embrace faith. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, are you at least willing to continue exploring to continue asking questions, to continue wrestling, and to do that here with us. I, I want this church to be a safe place for those who are, truly do have a thoughtfully skeptical position about who God is, about the claims of Christianity, and I want us to be a people who can wrestle with those things together. And perhaps, one thing I would say, this, we're kind of leading up to the start of, of our next session of community groups, that might be an action step for you that perhaps a, a step for you is to step into a community group, to be a part of a community where you can ask these questions and wrestle together. Uh, we, we have community groups that start the week of September 16th. Uh, if you're interested in jumping into a group, we'd love to find a group for you. Uh, you can find out information on our website. 
Or you can also contact uh, Nikki Deeker, and all her in, uh, contact info is on the website as well. But that would be a great way to jump in, to keep exploring and asking questions of faith. Now, for those of us who, who are followers of Jesus, and, and actually this, I think this applies to all of us, when we think about the situation of the crew and, and responding to danger with hope, uh, I, I think one of the things that we have to see is that God's ultimate plan, and I, th- I think we see this in Acts 27, but really throughout the rest of Scripture, is that God's ultimate plan in our life is, to, is not necessarily to rescue us from the storm, but rather to form us and shape us through the storm. And, and I think that is a, a misunderstanding that the people have had and has caused them to step away from the faith because there's been this assumption that if I have faith in Jesus, if I believe in God, then there will be no problems or trials in my life. And that couldn't be further from the truth when we see the story of the early church and we actually even understand the life of, of our Redeemer, of our Messiah, of our Savior. It is not God's ultimate plan simply to just rescue us from the storm, but to form us and shape us through the storm. And, and I, I, hear me, I, I don't want to say that flippantly. I don't want to diminish or, or uh, illegitimize your hardship, your pain, the trials or heartaches you've gone through. I by no means want to gloss over those and say, just get over it and God will make everything fine and wonderful. I'm not saying that. But rather what I do believe is that there is, so to speak, a, a method to the madness, that there is a purpose to our pain and that there is a treasure to be found even in our trials. And that God is doing this not so, not so that we can just have a, a deeper faith in him blindly, that's not his goal, but rather that we might be formed and shaped through the difficulties and trials of life. And the reason I say that is because the same man who is experiencing this, this horrid experience out to sea was able later on to pen these words in Romans chapter 5, where Paul says in verse 3, Brothers and sisters, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And what does hope do? Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. When we understand that God's plan is to not just deliver us from the storms, and to make our life peachy and wonderful and comfortable... It allows us to face these difficulties and hardships with a different posture, with a different outlook. Because even the most precious of metals are are formed and forged through the, the hottest of fires. And so if we are to be a people who are sent to endure no matter what we come across, we must be a people who are able to have hope even when hope seems lost. But the second thing that Luke shows us, and I think that God is showing us through this story, is that we must also be a people who love amid sorrow. That we should absolutely have have hope against fear, or I'm sorry, hope against despair, but rather we should also have love amid sorrow. Love amid sorrow. So in the middle of this tempestuous sea, aboard a less than sturdy vessel, and, and, and held by his very captors who want to keep him in chains, and some of which you'll see later want to kill Paul, Paul is able to respond to his captors with love and compassion. And, and this, is, this is unreal because, I mean, like, like I have a four-minute commute from work, and I barely have the patience to deal with people that I'm driving around in that short window of time. Much I can't imagine my response in a situation like Paul's, held by my captors who wish me dead, 
I can't imagine having the capacity and the ability to love in this moment, and yet that is precisely what Paul does. He gives them this kind of, this rah-rah speech, like, we can do this, we're going to survive, God has told me, trust in me. But he doesn't just give them a rah-rah speech, he actually loves them in very tangible ways. Notice what Luke says in verse uh, 34 through 36. Luke says, and this is Paul, therefore I urge you, he's speaking to the whole crew, okay, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now, Paul, Paul, this is not communion bread. It kind of has that same language. Paul broke the bread and gave thanks to God. He's not serving communion because these aren't necessarily followers of Jesus. He's literally just sharing a meal. Like he's giving these brothers a snack. That's what he's doing. Paul's playing the role of like like the boat dad, essentially. Like, I'm going to take care of you guys. All right, I've got some snacks here somewhere. And this is no small thing. And, and you've got to sense the irony here. The, the, the prisoner, the one who everyone kind of wishes that it was dead, is the one who's caring for, loving, and meeting the tangible needs of his captors. And so this whole crew, they're devastated, they're beat down, they've lost all hope. So not only are they physically exhausted, they are mentally and emotionally drained. All hope is gone. And Paul meets them in their sorrow with a tangible love. Even when Paul has so many justifiable reasons to say no and to not love them, he chooses to love amid their sorrow. And and notice what happens as a result. As Paul tries to create this culture of love and hospitality and compassion on this boat, it results in a reciprocal love displayed by Julius the centurion. So look with me at at chapter 27, verses 42 through 44. And so what we see is that as the boat starts to rip apart, they need to make it to the shore. And Luke records, it says, the soldier's plan, well, let me back up in verse 40. It says, by striking a reef, they ran the vessel to ground, the bow bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And then it says, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, notice, notice how there, there's this, this reciprocal love that Julius is extending to Paul. Wishing to save Paul, he kept them from carrying out their plan. And Julius ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and then the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So Paul's act of love amid the sorrow of the crew is what led to Julius's act of love amid this very dangerous circumstance that, that really did, like, like the rest of the crew, the prisoners were facing certain death. It was, it was part of the policy that if a prisoner were escaping during transport, they were to be killed so that they wouldn't escape. And Julius basically goes against the command given to him by his commanding officer and says, no, I'm going to save this crew. And while there's a lot that could be said about this, this idea of loving amid sorrow, I want to just point out one thing uh, for us to consider, and I think that Paul had in his survival kit, so to speak, that we should all adopt for ourselves. That perhaps the best way for us to endure and thrive in a season of hardship and difficulty is to show love to others, which sounds incredibly trite and simple, but but I I want to develop this. 
the idea of, of showing love and compassion when, when, when we are falling apart, when we are experiencing serious sorrow, that's the last thing on our minds. And yet, it is precisely the thing that I think we need in order to endure these kinds of difficult situations. In, in fact, as, as, I was, as I was kind of prepping for this sermon this week, I got an email from one of our church family members who expressed this very thought. She, she was sharing with me how she's been uh, struggling with depression. And, and she said that what she wanted to do as a way to combat this struggle in her life was to join one of our care teams. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Pastor Jonathan Neef talk about our care teams, these various ways that we can care for and meet the needs of our church family. And what she said, I love this, in her email she said, I think reaching out to help others is a good way to fight depression. And I think she is totally spot on. That, that's not to say that, that we should just always kind of just like disregard things and always love people, but uh, it, like, because we, ha- we should have wisdom, obviously, that we should have wisdom and boundaries with people who are hurtful, but I do believe that many of us could stand to have this tool in our survival toolkit of loving amid sorrow. And so maybe it's as simple as praying uh, for people in your life, and maybe particularly for the people who have caused hardship and sorrow in your life. Maybe it is uh, joining one of our care teams and and being a person who's able to bring love and compassion and meet tangible needs through loving acts uh, by bringing meals or helping people with auto repairs, whatever it may be, perhaps that is a step that you can take to be a person sent to endure by loving amid sorrow. So to be sent to endure, we must have hope against despair, and we must be able to have love amid sorrow. But Luke goes on as, he, as we lead into chapter 28, and he shows us also that during this crazy sea voyage, that this third kind of tool in our survival kit is that we must also have hospitality among strangers. We must have hospitality among strangers. When you read, really when you read all of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and, and Acts, but particularly these two chapters, you see this repetition of, of this word hospitality or, or unique kindness. And, and, and it's repeated multiple times, and I think it's for a purpose. Luke is wanting us to see that part of what it means to endure, to be the people of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ sent to endure, we need to show and receive hospitality from strangers. And in fact, the, the Greek word that we translate as hospitality in our English Bibles, it literally means love of stranger. That's what the word hospitality means at its root, love of stranger. And this hospitality, this kind of hospitable love among strangers is put on display in the next scene that we see in Acts chapter 28, where Paul and the crew, they're shipwrecked and they, they arrive on the island of Malta. Okay, so Malta is a tiny island. Uh, It's about 60 miles south of Sicily in the Mediterranean Sea. And this is where Paul and Luke, the Roman soldiers, and the rest of the crew arrive. And and, and, and some translations refer to the people of Malta as barbarians. But but notice notice their reception in verse 2 of chapter 28. Luke says, the native people, sometimes translations will say the barbarians there. The native people showed us unusual kindness, which is really the word hospitality. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. 
Now, what I love about this is that the people showing hospitality are the ones that you would probably think, I mean, if you're thinking like you're shipwrecked, you're on a deserted island, and a native people group comes and greets you, like, I've seen some movies, I know what happens, these are probably cannibals, you know? But no, instead, instead of being dinner, they are offered dinner, you know? And so it's a beautiful picture. The people who are least likely to be hospitable in our minds are the ones extending hospitality, It's the barbarians, these outsiders, that treat Paul and Luke and the Roman soldiers with great love, with unusual kindness. And again, I think what's going on, the reason why Luke is showing us these details is because God is showing us what it takes to endure. And so while we do need hope amidst Uh, against despair, and while we need love amid sorrow, we need to show hospitality among strangers. And that means both being the host and the guest. You see, one of the best ways we can learn to be hospitable people is to be treated uh, hospitably. That we, we shouldn't just play the role of host, but we should seek to play the role of guest. That there should be a reciprocity to our hospitality. The whole story, when you back up and look at this whole story in Acts 27 and 28, you see God's plan for the church, his plan for the church to be faithful and fruitful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus, in loving their neighbors well, all of this is showing, like what, what he's showing is that it's going to involve obstacles that we can't anticipate, it's going to, it's going to reach places that we can't even imagine, but, but to this last point about hospitality among strangers, we have to see also that for the church to be sent out and be faithful on mission, it is going to involve people we won't necessarily think of, and perhaps involve people that we may not even naturally like or get along with. And in fact, a, a book I would highly recommend to you, a book called Saved by Faith and Hospitality. It's by Dr. Josh Jipp. He's a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, where our residents come from. Uh, but in this book, and, and specifically commentating on this text, Dr. Jipp says this. He says, these are the people referring to the, to the barbarians, the, the Maltese people. And Luke does this throughout the gospel and Acts. He says, these are the people, the people of Malta, to whom God's salvation has been and will be extended, and that they are not only worthy of receiving, but are supremely capable of practicing and initiating friendship, hospitality, and philanthropy. Luke has made this point time and time again in his gospel through the book of Acts that the kingdom of God is not reserved for a particular people group, It is not reserved for a people in a certain tax bracket or of a certain ethnicity or of a certain cultural bent, but rather the kingdom of God is an equal opportunity community for all people who recognize that they are sinners in need of salvation and that Christ Jesus is the only hope to that salvation. And if that is our truth and if we come to believe in that, then we find that there is nothing that can keep us from being a part of this new community. And because of this truth, if if that is absolutely true, that there is no social status or any category that could keep us from being brought in to the family of God, then, then part of what it means to endure is to be people who can show hospitality among strangers. And because of this truth, the church, we really do, we need to do away with this kind of pernicious and undermining mindset that kind of pits Christians up against the world. 
You know, we, we, we do, we create these categories of, of, of there's us and then there's them. And we create this kind of division. And, and it, it really, I mean, it, it shows that we, we really are missing out on the point of what the, the mission of the church is, is to be a blessing to all nations. Absolutely, followers of Jesus must live and love in distinct ways from, from those who don't follow Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should just kind of like just capitulate to the culture and just look like everybody else, but we must love, we must live in distinct ways. But we must also be willing to recognize our own tendencies to kind of divide, to kind of create tribes and to say, I'm in and you're out. That the church of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, we need to guard ourselves from saying we have the truth and we'll wait until you kind of come around to see our side of things before we begin to start, you know, forming a relationship with you. We have to be willing, just as the Maltese people and just as Paul was willing to form a relationship with these islanders, we must be willing to show mutual hospitality with strangers. Christians ought to be known for their unusual kindness. I mean, that, that word that is described to the Maltese people, this is the word that should be used to describe Christians that we should be people of unusual kindness and not just described by other Christians. It's one thing for Christians to say, yeah, yeah, my church family, we, we show a lot of great unusual kindness for one another. But man, I would long to see the day where the church of Jesus Christ is known by the world for being a people who show unusual kindness even to those who are not a part of their tribe, so to speak. Christians of all people ought to have the biggest tables. They ought to have the most diverse friend groups. They ought to have the most understanding postures with people who think and act and live differently from them. But unfortunately, that is not always the case. We need to be a people who are willing to listen and understand to form relationships with those who are not like us, who don't see the scriptures the same way we do, so that we might be able to be the church that God has called us to. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we should be soft on theology and just kind of everybody, you know, anybody can be a Christian and we'll just kind of let some things go. No, no, you must repent of sin, believe in Jesus as your only hope in life and death. But can we be a people who are able to extend hospitality to strangers out of the love that we have received, out of the hospitality we have received as strangers to God? As one commentator put it, uh, Ben Witherington, he says this really helpfully. He says, on the whole, the account of the sea journey and the stay on Malta, it seems to intend to display images of cooperative relationships between Christians and non-Christians, not just for the sake of unity, but to what end? To benefit, to the benefit of all. Such reciprocity or friendship relationships can and should exist between Christians and pagans, which is just a word to describe those who are not Christians. What does it look like for the church of Jesus Christ to have meaningful, authentic, hospitable relationships with people who are different from us? The church is sent to endure, not by guarding ourselves from outsiders, but rather by forming meaningful relationships with others by offering hope, love, and hospitality. And, and that all sounds great and nice, but, but I, I, I want to drive this point home even stronger to, to anchor it in the ultimate why. Why should Christians be known for their unusual kindness? Why should Christians extend hope 
uh, against despair? Why should Christians show love amid sorrow? Why should Christians show hospitality among strangers? It's because this is the very pathway that Christ accomplished our salvation through the life, death, and resurrection, that by our faith in that, we receive newness of life. This is precisely the path that our Lord took to secure our salvation, which is what the, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, in describing the path that we follow in the wake of Jesus, who lived, who died, and rose again for us, referring to Jesus, he said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued doing what? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The reason the church of Jesus Christ must be known for unusual kindness for having hope amid despair, for having love amid sorrow and hospitality among strangers is because this is precisely the love that we receive through Christ Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ has not been sent to comfort, to ease, to simplicity, or to smooth sailing, pun intended, but rather the church has been sent to follow in the steps of the one who shed his blood for us, securing our salvation declaring us righteous, taking our sin, as we sing, taking our sin, not in part, but the whole, and nailing it to the cross so that we bear it no more, so that we might say, praise the Lord, O my soul. The one who, who held to hope, the one who was able to display love amid sorrow, the one who was able to show extravagant, hospitable love among strangers, namely you and me, this is why we should be marked by an unusual kindness for all peoples, so yes, we all love a great story of endurance, and my hope and prayer is that we would all come to see that through Christ Jesus, through the one who endured sin and death on our behalf, that we can share in his same great story of endurance in all things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we come to you again in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Lord, I confess to you that, that, that in the midst of, of moments of despair, I don't cling to hope. Lord, when, when I am weighed down by sorrow, I, I, I don't have the margin of the ability to show love. And Lord, I know that I have created divisions within my own mind and heart for people that are different from me. Lord, I ask that you would work in my heart and our hearts to break through the barriers that we have created that keep us from seeing you for who you are seeing us for who we can be in you, and seeing the beauty and the inherent worth in all people. Lord, I pray for us as a church, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Lord, would you, by the truth of the gospel, would you radically transform us that we might be a people who show unusual kindness to all people, that we might be able to show hope against despair, that we might display love amid sorrow, and that we might truly show unusual kindness to our neighbors, to our enemies, to all people. And Lord, may you do this because of what you have done for us. May that be the motivation behind our love and compassion. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. 
That is the truth. Again, that it's, it is not just God's plan to, to get us away from the storms and to make our lives perfect and smooth, but that he is with us in the storm, that he is sovereign over all things, and that he is at work informing us and shaping us through the hardships and difficulties of this life. And so I hope this morning was encouraging, was challenging, and maybe, maybe created some sense of discomfort even in pushing us further down this path of what it means to know Jesus, to walk in his ways, and to be the church who is sent to endure. And so again, if you're a guest, we'd love to, to meet you and greet you. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus and to, to be sent to endure and to join us in this mission, uh, I would love to chat with you more about that. So you can come find me. I'd love to chat with you. But, but as we prepare to leave this place from being the church gathered to being the church scattered, as we seek to follow Christ in all areas of life, hear these words in the Apostle Paul as our benediction, our good word for the road. Brothers and sisters, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Go in peace. Have a great week.